That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. A few things I'd like to discuss today. We've had a little bit of economic data out of Ireland in the last 24 hours. There's not a lot happening on the data front. It just happens to be that time of the month. Retail sales yesterday, which is basically consumer spending on physical goods. That's roughly 37, 38% of total consumer spending, but it's published on a monthly basis. So it is always a good gauge for what the Irish consumer is doing. In the month of February, the volume of sales was up by 0.7%. Uh, that was a 3.6% annual growth rate. And in value terms, growth of 1.8%. And that's 11.1% year on year. So the key message here is that you know consumer spending is holding up pretty well despite the headwinds and indeed a key contributor to that would have been car sales which actually are growing reasonably strongly this year relative to the same period last year some news on the house front house price front um, in the united states yesterday we saw the publication of the case schiller 20 city hope home price index which showed that in the year to January, average house prices in those 20 cities increased by 2.5%. This was the lowest growth rate since November 2019. And in a number of cities like San Francisco, prices actually declined. So it's clear that the interest rate environment is certainly impacting on house prices. And DAF.ie here in Ireland published data showing that in the first quarter, average house prices fell by 0.3%. Uh, That's making some headlines here, obviously, after a number of years of very, very strong growth. There's congressional testimony going on in the United States Congress at the moment relating to uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, people may have been a little bit surprised at the rapid action by the Federal Reserve, the Treasury and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation when they stepped in 
to basically shut down SVB and introduce a number of um, significant supports for banking generally, but for that bank specifically. But there was an interesting insight from one of the Fed Reserve officials at that congressional testimony yesterday. He basically said that on the day that the FDIC stepped in, $100 billion in deposits was scheduled to be withdrawn. And that follows deposit withdrawal of $42 billion the previous day. So $142 billion is equivalent to roughly 80% of their deposits. So you can just see the panic that was setting in and you can see the rationale for the incredibly strong intervention that we saw. Um, Chris, you may want to comment on any well, of those if issues. I might just say that yeah. one, of the, one of the aspects about that that has fascinated me, that has attracted a lot of attention, and we've mentioned it before, but the amount of chatter about this since the demise of SVB has, be, has grown to a crescendo. And that is that the, the ways in which runs on banks happen in this new tech-driven world that we live in, that the queues outside the branch of the bank are gone. That's not going to happen again because we can just withdraw our money online. We can do it as I'm sitting here at my computer with a few clicks get our money out. And whether you're an individual or in the case of SVB, probably a large corporation with these large deposits, you can just boom, do it in in a heartbeat. Uh, That friction in the system is gone, which means that the money can flow, as I say, in an instant. And that seems to be what happened. And so regulators are now rushing to try and catch up with this idea that a run on a bank can now happen in a heartbeat. And that's new. And uh, I'm not quite sure how they're going to deal with it, but they're going to have to have much closer monitoring systems, real-time monitoring systems of what's happening in their banks. One of the things that's also emerged in recent days, Jim, I don't think it was at that hearing you mentioned, although it might have come up, is that last year a letter was written to the regulator in the States by a whole bunch of luminaries. I think Paul Volcker was one of the signatories of this letter, warning about stresses and strains in the small and medium-sized regional banks in the United States. So the regulator was warned about this. So the evidence is piling up that in the US, they've done a pretty bad job. And now they're having to rush to catch up with the changing environment in which they're operating and the fact that they didn't actually regulate these banks properly to begin with. They didn't have them under supervision in the way that they did. Supervision is having to change very rapidly. The Bank of England has announced today that it is going to stress test or is asking pension funds in the UK to stress test themselves for an event like the one that nearly took them down last summer. And in particular, again, it's about rises in government bond yields, the rate at which governments have to to pay to, to borrow money. And they've asked pension funds to stress test their positions if government bond yields, gilts they're called in the UK, if gilt yields rise by twice what they did last September. It was a pretty dramatic rise last September and they really, really going for it on the, on the stress tests. So the, the way in which our financial system is being examined, regulated, thankfully is changing very, very, very rapidly. But I suspect, you know, it's, it's, there's stable doors being closed after the horse has bolted. And it's what we don't know that worries me. Is, is where the next stress is going to come from. But it's, let's acknowledge it's a good thing that um, these things are happening. It seems to have calmed things down. Markets have been calmer in the last few days. And I think what the message is from financial markets, provided we don't get something coming out of a clear blue sky to hit us again, this phase of the banking crisis 
if not over, has certainly gone very, very quiet. Yeah, Chris, you implicitly criticise the regulator there, but it's not the regulator's fault, is it? It's the political system. I mean, the Trump legislative changes in 2018 following pressure from the CEO CEO of SVB Bank, amongst a lot of others, that's responsible for this. I, I suspect if the regulator itself got its way, it probably would regulate very, very stringently. That's a fair point, Jim. Yes, I, I, I do stand corrected. In the United States, at least, the regulator was operating in a straitjacket that had been put on them by the Trump administration by Congress that voted to exclude these banks from things like stress testing. So yeah, you're right. It's a failure of regulation, but it's not a failure of the regulators. It's the framework in which they were being allowed to operate. You're quite right to to make that distinction. Well done. But it, it, ju- it just shows you the impact that political interference has. And I noticed that the Irish government has just survived a vote of confidence uh, that arose from its decision to abolish the um, eviction ban that's been in place for some time. So, but, but, but... Uh, Can we talk about that for a second, Jim? Yeah. Because <clears throat> you know, I had an interesting conversation with a young Irish person, my son actually, about this issue. And I made the economist's point, the one that people like me and you might make, I won't put words in your mouth, that if you want a private rental sector, you've got to allow evictions. Because one of the reasons why landlords are deserting the market, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons why landlords are saying they don't want to do it anymore, the landlord thing, is because of the fear that they can't get tenants out um, if they if they want to, you know, if there are rental arrears or some other reason. You've, you've simply got to allow this sort of thing to happen if you want that segment of the market to exist. And the point that my mate, son made to me was really hoist by my own petard, because I always say about all sorts of things, it's, it's far more complicated than simplistic slogans and solutions would suggest. And he said, it's more complicated than that, because if you are going to allow evictions, you are going to increase homelessness, and you have to think that through. That introduces a new comp- complication. And that the right thing to do is, yes, if you if the decision is you want a private rental sector, yes, you must allow evictions. But you've got to make sure that if those evictions take place, that those most in need of social housing as a result of the evictions get social housing. They can't be turned out into the streets and add to the homeless figures. If your measure of uh, allowing evictions means that your homeless rate is about to shoot up, you've got to do something about that. And the point about this current policy is that there is it's it's you you've got one half of it allowing evictions, but you ain't got this massive drive to make sure that homelessness doesn't spike. I thought that was a reasonable riposte to my arguments. I don't know what you think, Jim. Thinking back on, we did a podcast a few weeks back uh, when the government was making the decision to uh, get rid of this ban on evictions, and uh, incidentally, it was one of the podcasts that didn't get a lot of downloads. Um, it didn't attract a lot of attention. Um, not sure what that tells us, but um, we did make the point at that stage. Well, I, I certainly made the point that the landlords are being blamed in many ways for this crisis and. You know, the ban on evictions was a sort of a regulation that was imposed upon private landlords that exacerbated an already difficult situation for private landlords. But at the end of the day, these private landlords and the ban that was put in place, they're scapegoats for a basic failure of government to look after that segment 
of the renting population that it's meant to be looking after. So, you know, I, I would agree with what Nathan was saying. I mean, it may, makes sense if you're going to do something like this, um, you need to make sure that there are contingency arrangements in place to deal with the fallout. And the reason why the ban was introduced in the first place is because those contingencies had not been put in place um, and nothing has changed since the ban was put in place. Now it's being um, abolished and still nothing in place. So you are inevitably going to see a significant increase in homelessness, one would have thought. And I think the political fallout from this over the coming months will be quite extraordinary. More generally, Jimmy, I might just say, sorry for interrupting you there, that that, that, although it wasn't the most downloaded podcast in our history, it still attracted an awful lot of attention. And the subsequent posts that both of us have written and podcasts that we spoke about, about the housing problem causing this intergenerational thing, this question about are younger people worse off? We've talked about it a lot now. Um, But what I have been impressed by is that anybody like me or you that says it's more complicated than that, you need to think about things in context, trying to introduce all of the other issues that we have raised, we we ain't being listened to. Nobody is paying any attention to this and that anybody under 40, it really is housing. Um, We just get yelled at. Housing is the issue. And whether you think this is right or whether you think that it is wrong, I'm just merely observing what I consider to be a fact based on the feedback that we've got. Housing is the issue. Housing is the issue that these people are going to vote on in the next general election. And as many, many listeners have contacted me to say, as a result of seeing this as a single issue general election, Sinn Féin are going to clean up. I, for one moment, don't think it's wrong. I think it's absolutely correct. Housing is clearly the biggest issue. And I have certainly been bleating on for the last couple of years that from an economic, social and political perspective, housing is the biggest challenge we face. And OK, the economic impact is obvious because it is housing is and the cost and availability of housing is a key area of national competitiveness we're suffering um, from a social perspective you know homelessness people being forced to pay higher and higher mortgage repayments that's um, a huge social issue and from a political perspective and we have made this argument several times the key reason why Sinn Féin is at 35 percent or thereabouts in the opinion poll And if you look at the demographic breakdown of that, um, it has a much higher approval rating for people aged between 20 and 40. And guess what? It's people aged between 20 and 40 are at the forefront of this housing problem. So I I wouldn't disagree for one moment, but I think, and, and we've always said housing is a huge issue and it does represent a marked deterioration for this generation relative to 20 years ago and our generation. But it's also important, I think, in this debate to have a more nuanced approach to it. There are lots of other factors at play that need to be considered as well. But 100% housing is top of the agenda. And if the government does not make progress, Sinn Féin will sweep into government. I mean, you say it's important to have the nuanced context-based debate, but I think we're in a minority of two that think that, Jim, to be honest. Uh, I don't think it's going to matter based on the feedback that we've got. Uh, nobody wants to know that the Ireland, according to the United Nations, is the eighth best country in the world to live in. Doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, I know you're right. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, but but we will obviously continue to talk about this because it is an evolving situation. But what do you make of the Daft.ie report about Irish house prices starting to soften? Um, 
it's it's predictable. It's certainly not rocket science. Well, for once, I think we did predict it. We have banged on for over a year now about high house prices that in part, in a large part, I think, globally caused by ultra low interest rates. It, and there's plenty of evidence, plenty of research that we could cite to back that up. It's not the only factor driving house prices up, but it certainly is a big one. So if you put interest rates up, don't be surprised when house prices react accordingly. If anything, I'm surprised that they haven't reacted by more, uh, which suggests, of course, that um, there may well be lags in the system, or it may be that house prices aren't as sensitive to interest rates as I previously thought. But there are signs that house prices are cracking in lots of markets, not in a awful way. There's no house price crash going on anywhere, but the housing market is is weak in the, here in the UK. You've mentioned some US data. Uh, the Bank of England this morning has produced some numbers to do with new mortgages in, in the UK and is warning about, the, uh, in a sense, a mortgage shock coming because of the, the move to fixed rate mortgages in recent years means that people are less sensitive to changes in interest rates immediately. It's only when their mortgages have to be refinanced. And so they're saying the effective interest rate, the actual rate paid on new mortgages, rose in February to 4.24% from 3.88% in January. So a small increase consistent with their rises in interest rates. Um, but that those are the rates that people are going to have to be paying when either they get their first mortgage or their old mortgage fix rolls off, their two, three, five-year fixes roll off this year. These are the sorts of rates that they're going to have to pay. And so therefore, I think there are lags in the system. And as people refinance their mortgages at these higher rates, they are going to be unpleasantly surprised, unfortunately. This must be true in Ireland as well. I know that the mortgage rate in Ireland is probably not that different from the figures that I quoted there. Um, and when people's fixes roll over, they, they are going to be unpleasantly surprised. But, but Chris, how does that impact house prices? I mean, surely... It's people who are coming in to buy a house. They're the ones that influence house prices. You know, one, one of the things that perhaps makes Irish house prices less sensitive to interest rates than elsewhere at the moment is probably the fact that the demand is just so strong here from a demographic perspective. Still, Good points. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Good points. And that might, that might account for my point, which is that prices have not fallen by as much as I thought they were going to. There are non-interest rate factors driving house prices. Absolutely, Jim, you're right. Um, but, I, but, but, but still, Chris, I, I would say that for prospective house buyers now, while the demand is very, very strong, uh, they're looking at the mortgage they're going to get and the repayment capacity they have. And that is definitely influencing and will increasingly influence how much they're prepared to pay for a house. So that in itself is... And secondly, if I may... Um, one of the big drivers of house prices and demand in Dublin particularly has been the highest paid segment of the Irish workforce, which is the technology sector. And if you look at what has happened to the technology sector over the last year, um, it's estimated that there's about 2,600 jobs gone in that sector. But more importantly, there's a huge amount of uncertainty now about future job security and technology. So that is taking out another segment of the house buying population that would have certainly been instrumental in bidding prices up. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For sure. So the state of the economy and in particular, the state of the jobs market is an important factor in any, in when you're thinking about the drivers of housing demand. And so you've got affordability, in other words, interest rates, your mortgage repayments have gone up, and your income maybe hasn't gone up as much as you thought it was, and maybe it's under threat because your job is under threat. And that is a double whammy for housing. And it's not just, and I know you didn't say this, but I'm setting this up as a straw man. It's not just first-time buyers that drive house prices. Don't forget, everybody is a potential house purchaser. You might be an upgrader. You might be thinking of selling your house and move as your family expands, as your needs expand, to, to get a, a, a bigger house, a better house, or a house in a different location because you're moving uh, for job or other reasons. So everybody, in a sense, is a potential uh, not first-time buyer, but a buyer of a house. So if the, yes. the first-time buyer is deterred because of job prospects and higher costs. The people thinking of buying another house somewhere else for another reason is also deterred because they, they've got you know sticker shock, which is that if you can't upgrade in the way that you thought you previously could, for example. You can't move Chris, from a cheap area to an expensive area, for example. Is, is, is it not the case, though, that um, if somebody is moving house, that the, the net supply of housing doesn't change? Okay, they sell one house, they buy another house, whereas it's the first time buyers, they're the ones that really drive new demand. Far, far be it from me to start wittering on about supply curves and demand curves to a university lecture in economics gym, which I know that you are. But we need to be very careful about what curve yeah. we're talking about here. Are we? To, we're, I'm talking about the demand, you know, changes in demand for a given supply. And you're talking, you know, and all of these things interact yeah. in, in ways that vary through time, vary across geographies. But if both, yes, the supply side of housing in Ireland is still a big problem pushing house prices up. But if you hold that constant for this thought experiment, all of the factors for housing demand are now suggesting it's going to be a wee bit less than perhaps we previously thought. Yes, indeed. No, I'll, 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 I'll certainly grant you that. Uh, but I you know, to wrap it up, and this is something we will continue to return to because it is an evolving situation. But the good news is that the housing market is softening here. Long may it continue, in my view, because prices are too high. Um, and I think through a combination, hopefully, of rising interest rate, I'm not hoping for higher interest rates, but I'm hoping the higher interest rates we're seeing, the greater level of economic uncertainty will dampen expectations and you know, continue to cause the market to soften needs to happen. Chris, I am always intrigued and very envious of you, how much time you have on your hands. I, I was on a train from Cork yesterday evening when I saw your post about chat GPT and you asked it to talk about nimbyism. And I just want, I want to give you my perspective on that in a second. But 
for a, a broader discussion of chat GPT, um, there was an open letter in the Irish Times today from the Future of Life Institute, a thousand tech researchers and executives, including Elon Musk. I think that was called... the FT, wasn't it, rather than the Irish Times? Did I say the Irish Times? Step of the tongue, Jim. Yeah, sorry, the financial, an open letter in the Financial Times, I beg your pardon. Um, the, Future Life in the Future of Life Institute, Elon Musk was amongst the thousand signatories to that letter, but they're basically calling for a six-month pause on the development of, art, of advanced artificial intelligent systems such as OpenAI's open AI's GPT to halt what they call a dangerous arms race, okay? You entered that arms race yesterday. You asked Chat GPT three, which is not the latest edition, uh, to talk about NIMBYism, and we got a really strong reaction to that on our Substack site. Um, you asked people to mark it out of ten, and most people were somewhere between four and six. So there was a guarded approval. But uh, I have to say, from my perspective, uh, I felt well. I found it really interesting. I think. Um, what chat GPT came up with on NIMBYism definitely gives food for thought. Okay, it makes assertions without backing them up with evidence. But surely as a researcher, um, it's now the job of a researcher to go and look at the assertions that it's making and see, is there evidence to back up what it's saying? And th there, was, there was a number of arguments it made about NIMBYism. One was, um, and the reason why there's NIMBYism, increasing traffic in their neighborhood, a negative impact on property values, which this, which it says is based on subjective aesthetic preferences. It perpetrates inequality and exacerbates the housing crisis. Okay, so th these are the reasons our chat GPT, GPT-3 experiment came up with for NIMBYism. And, uh, you know, some of the arguments may be fundamentally flawed, but surely as the beginning of a research project and a thought process for anybody, you know, it's good to get this stuff thrown at you and you can then go away and test the hypothesis that this is coming up with. And there is a, uh, I guess, a significant difference of opinion everywhere about the power of chat GPT. Um, Tyler Cowen, who's a, a very, very esteemed economist and professor of economics at Mason University in Virginia, he has written a piece in his blog and he says that what kind of, he asked the question, what kind of civilization is it that turns away from the challenge of dealing with more intelligence? So he is very much, um, he believes chat GPT and all of the other versions of it that are coming from different um, companies uh, will fundamentally change the world. And then you have somebody like Noam Chomsky, the linguist, um, who's quite early at the moment. And in fact, uh, somebody I've read a lot over the years, some of his books, um, I've lost all respect from over the last 12 months because of his take on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But anyway, um, he is basically saying that uh, this is an experiment in language rather than in intelligence. So he is totally dismissive. So a lot of stuff going on, but it was a fascinating experiment. I compliment you on that. Thank you, Jim. Uh, there's a lot there and we could talk for hours about this. And I suspect we will, because just to give a little trailer, we will get Noah Smith, who is a, a world famous writer, journalist, tech specialist, political, you know, he writes about so much stuff, a, a real renaissance man in this age of hyper-specialization. 
We're going to get him on the pod in the next week or two to talk precisely about these issues in depth. And so let's just sketch out some of the issues, which you've just done very, very well there. I wanted to do two things with this post that I put up on our Substack site yesterday. It was a short post written entirely by the chatbot. So that's scary thing number one, is that this is a post on our Substack site that you and I didn't write. I lightly edited it for American spelling of English words and and a couple of other things, but it was 99.9% written by the chatbot. And I also wanted to tackle a very salient issue in Ireland and the UK, which is about planning and planning reform and why we can't build anything anymore. And one of the reasons why we can't build anything anymore is because of NIMBYism. And so this wrote a post about why NIMBYs are wrong. And it did it, as you say, in a four, five, six out of 10 way. Most of our readers thought that it was a fair to middling kind of uh, response, or at least that's the, the view of our readers. And it was the post in all of the things that we've written over the last few years, Jim, on the Substack side, it is the post that got the most reactions, people who normally don't comment on our pieces. And so I want to say thank you to everybody that did comment. That was great. Um, It really got a fantastic conversation going. Anybody interested in this, I would urge you to go over to our Substack site and have a look at the readers, listeners and readers' comments uh, about this. You you mentioned Tyler Cowen, you mentioned Noam Chomsky, and I think that sets the parameters of the debate, which is that on the one hand, you've got someone like Tyler, and my inclinations are with him, which is that this is history in the making. This is electricity, the internet, the steam engine, all rolled into one, and it is happening so fast, so quickly. One of the many amazing things about these AI systems is how quickly they are adapting, changing, and evolving by the day. It's happening at light speed in real time. Just extraordinary, the progress that is being made. Noam Chomsky and a couple of other writers in the New York Times earlier this month said basically, for the reasons that you suggested earlier on, Jim, that it's a nothing burger. It's just an algorithm. It isn't intelligence. Uh, I disagree, but it is a point of view. And so we're going to tease these issues out with Noah, you and I, in in a week or two's time. What, What I would say, though, is that speaking personally... I think if you if you remember, as you do, Jim, when Google first came out, and for people like us, it was a revelation. It was fantastic because it short-circuited trips to the library, plowing through textbooks, plowing through research periodicals, plowing through newspapers to uh, do our day jobs and to do the things that we like to do. It enabled us to really become more productive and more creative in, in quite extraordinary ways. And at, at risk of blowing smoke up my own firmament, I've often described myself in very conceited terms as a Google Black Belt user. So when ChatGPT came along, I thought, my God, this is Google on steroids. It really is. And I could see exactly how this could be used as a force for good. Not necessarily Chris Johns's creativity or productivity, but everybody's. If they use it properly, this is going to be absolutely amazing because it short circuits so much. It enables things to be done much faster, much better. It's going to enable me, I hope, to be even more creative on our Substack site. The downside, of course, is that Google can also be used to cheat in pub quizzes, to look, you know, ask it what the capital of Peru is. Um, and of course, for a, a colossal amount of internet traffic, um, the most popular Google searches are for porn sites. 
So Google itself is a force for good and a force for ill. And if ChatGPT and all these other AI systems are Google on steroids, they are going to be a force for good on steroids and a force for bad on steroids. Did you see the fake photo of the Pope that went viral in the last few days? In his white Dunlop jacket, I did yes. indeed. That was a deep fake. And that's yeah. one of the things that those thousand tech executives, Elon Musk and co, wrote to the FT about. It's because one of the many bad things that can be used, this, these systems can be used for, is creating fake photos. It can be used for creating pretty much fake anything. People will need to start asking, is this really Chris John speaking? And we can only hope that there is some intelligence, artificial or otherwise, behind what he's saying. Who knows in the future whether this podcast is the result <clears throat> excuse me, of a deep fake or something that we are genuinely doing as human beings. Should we care whether it's a deep fake or not? So that all of those issues are there. And I think that's one of the reasons why these tech executives have say, look, we need to put a moratorium on this to think these issues through. Um, at the most extreme, lurid example of what people are worried about is that if these systems have uh, not just the ability to answer questions in an intelligent or a dumb way, the ability to produce deep fake photographs, what happens if these computer systems have access to other computer systems? So, for example, if you instructed a future, couldn't do it today, but if you instructed a future chatbot to cure the world of cancer, stop, pe stop people from getting cancer, the solution it might have would be, all right, I'll just kill everybody. And that way, nobody ever gets cancer again. It's a logical answer that a computer might come up with. It's a ridiculous uh, thing to posit, but that's what people are worried about. And then there's the uses of AI for the military. There's the uses of AI for scams. Uh, you, you think that you're getting sophisticated scams right now from uh, people claiming to be your bank, I get scammed on a daily basis at the moment by people claiming to be the road toll operator, saying that my payment for paying road tolls has failed to go through. Please make the payment. And it's a very convincing looking message that I get, but it's a scam. Think about it when AI comes up with these scams. Imagine asking ChatGPT3. I haven't done and I won't, but just and I hope that the programmers will stop this from happening. Devise a nice scam that I can get some money from Jim Power. On, in some way, shape, or form. And it'll come up, presumably, some of these less reputable uh, AI systems will come up with very convincing ways for me to make you um, lose some contact with your money, Jim. So that's why that's why they're, they're asking people to think about this and actually just get some rules, regulations, and procedures in place. The, the one thing that encourages me is that, of course, all of these AI systems are American. They aren't, they aren't be, they, you know, the Chinese and the Russians, no doubt, are, are trying very hard to get them. Um, but that, that all of the innovation, as usual, is coming in the States. But just imagine what Putin and Xi Jinping would do with these systems, even if the Americans put their moratorium on it. Um, you can imagine the, the state surveillance of the Chinese Communist Party, what it's going to do with, with, with all of this stuff. So, yeah, it's a huge force for good and it's a huge force for evil. I'm going to conclude my remarks now. I've got a lot more I could say and, and will say on future pods, particularly with no, that one of the things that worries me about the world, we've talked about it, uh, we haven't talked about it for a while, but we used to talk about it a lot, is inequality. And if you think about what these artificial intelligence systems are, is that word intelligence. 
And if you imagine that vast swathes of the world's population for you know reasons that are nothing, nobody's fault or the people concerned, it's the fault of the system, the uneducated people in the world, the people who um, are at a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of intelligence, whether it's inherited or whether it's you know, the environment hereditary debate. So you have a base, you, know, you have a population at that level. And then in order to be able to use these systems for good, because the, the trick with use being a black belt Google user or a black belt GPT user is that you've got to be very smart, very educated, very experienced, have deep domain knowledge of the subject that you're trying to research and all the rest of it. The gap between the educated and the uneducated is just growing. That's a particular point. The more general point is that I can see ways in which, yes, this can be used for ill, but one of the consequences of using it in a good way is that those of us that are able to take advantage of this, if you like, to profit from artificial intelligence, um, it's just going to widen those gaps, those knowledge gaps between creative workers and people who are less than creative workers. And so all of the, the forces for inequality in our society are going to be even more winner takes all. Fascinating. But I, you know, I, I, I'd have to say I'd be on Tyler Cowen's side of this argument when he says that ChatGPT is about to change the world. And you made the point in response to one of the um, responses we got yesterday that basically this is ChatGPT 3 that you did this on, that version 4 is out now. So it ain't going to get any worse. It's just going to get better and more powerful from here. So, um, love it or hate it, um, it, it is going to be a huge shaper of the future. I was looking through some of Tyler Cowen's previous uh, blog posts, and uh, there was one that struck me that I'll just leave you with here. Um, he sort of tackled this narrative about the UK being a failed state that people like you have been profounding for so long. Um, and in fact, he says he's very upbeat on the south of England, and he regards Oxford, Cambridge, and London as really the world leaders in many areas. So there yeah. you are. Well, as we all know, Oxford and Cambridge and London are not the UK. Try <laughs> try going to some of, some of the other places in the UK and you might get a slightly different impression. And of course, it depends on which bits of London you go to. That's true of all of our cities. We, we, we will revisit the UK. I don't think I've ever, ever said the UK is a failed state. I've said it's failing in many different respects. But of course, it is still one of the richest countries in the world. Jim, we should call it there. Thank you very much for another great discussion. Speak to you next Super time. Chris, talk again. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 
Shopify.com slash retail 23.